This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Kirk Megu, host of Politics and Polemics on the New Books Network. I also host my own podcast called Independent Thought and Freedom, where I interview some of the most interesting people from around the world who are shaking up politics, economics, society, and ideas. You can find it in the iTunes Store or on any one of your favorite podcast providers. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, Are you an academic that wants to get heard nationally? Check out my free training on three steps how to use your intellectual authority to become a media personality at becomeapublicintellectual.com. That's becomeapublicintellectual.com. You can find the links below. And now, on to this week's episode. Hi. Today, my guest is best-selling Scandinavian author and independent broadcaster, Hannah Nabintu Herland, whose new book, New Left Tyranny, The Authoritarian Destruction of Our Way of Life, has been recently published by Christian Publishing House this year. Welcome, Han. Thank you very much. Yes, and greetings from Trinidad and Tobago here in the Caribbean. You're still in the UK now? Yes, I'm still in the UK, enjoying the UK. It's wonderful here. Were you able to recently travel there or were you stuck there during the whole um, lockdown period? No, um, I've had most of the lockdown period in the UK, but I have also been able to travel. And I do understand they're lifting the lockdown in a week or so for for these quarantines and stuff within nations um, within Europe. So that's going to be great. Okay, good, good. Because you live in Norway, uh, correct? Uh, Yes, I live in Norway. I'm a Norwegian uh, author and uh, the founder of the Herland Report. Uh, I was born and raised Mm -hmm. in Africa. So so there's a bit of a cultural mix in what I do and what I write as well. Yes, exactly. Uh, for for our listeners who aren't familiar with you and your work, could you just um, give us a little background, especially as it relates to you know how it re- um, led to you writing uh, your latest book, New Left Tyranny? Well, I would have to go a few years back because, as I said, I was born and raised in Africa and moved to to Europe when I was nineteen years old. And one of the first things that struck me as I came to Europe was to notice 
the strong opinions that regular Europeans had about Africa um, and the very negative opinions, of course, as well. And it struck me because coming from Africa, I came from Kenya and that was the nation that so many um, people came to in order to get merchandise and goods and everything. It was a wonderfully working country at the time. Uh, and coming to Europe, that nation was kind of demonized. And they said, oh, those are the dictators, horrible places. And when I tried to explain to them that Kenya was a wonderful country, I found that many Europeans were kind of fact resistant. Uh, and I understood that much of it came from the media. And from this point on, uh, at a very young age, really, I, I, I started to comprehend that there's a strong sense of propaganda within the media that portrays other nations in a certain way to Europeans. And from then on, I started doing cultural studies. And that's really the basic reason for, for me getting into the kind of work that I do now. And also the New Leftarian in my latest book addresses these issues. Right. That's very interesting because um, the type of misinformation and um, skewed perspectives on Africa you're talking about, you're not talking about right-wing um, um, right wing distortions, are you, uh, coming from uh, Norway? To be Is honest, um, to be honest, I'm speaking in a much broader manner because what I have uh, found to be mm -hmm. true is that, you know, um, during the Second World War and, and pre before the Second World War as well, the whole of Europe was submerged in in um, a kind of Darwinian thinking, social Darwinism mm. that estimated that European culture was at the top of, you know, the, the cultural scales and that other nations were um, less developed, uh, etc. And within mm -hmm. that kind of thinking, um, uh, I do believe the Nazi ideology also came out of that. Uh, and I do believe that kind of thinking still is very strong in Europe. Uh, and it's seen both in the right wing and on the left wing side of politics. I argue this in my book yeah. as well. On the left, uh, from the left wing, you tend to see the tendency that has been there since the 1970s that we should feel sorry for anyone who is not from Europe. That is, look at Sweden, for example. <laughs> if Africans rape in Sweden, you'll see how the police doesn't want to touch this, the matter really that much. Uh, the media doesn't want to address uh, the fact that, for example, rapists were, were from Africa because we are supposed, as, as left-wingers, we're supposed to feel sorry for those who come from other nations and not treat them equally as we treat, let's say, white people. So on the left-hand side, you do find that to be a problem, that you cannot address problems pertaining to non-Western immigrants because then you're immediately called mm -hmm. a racist. And, you know, and on the right wing side, uh, you do find Europeans being uh, subjected to the same kind of thinking, namely um, 
as long as we can get all the non-Westerners to move away from Europe, everything is going to be wonderful here. So I do find that to be a racist perspective as well. Uh, so within this segment, we do find that kind of um, the denigrating thinking and lack of equality, uh, uh, both on the right wing, in the right wing, and on the left wing attitude uh, in Europe. That is my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a, a very, very, very important insight. Um, the social Darwinism being on the both the right and the left, because normally, uh, either in academic discourse or, or what you hear in the media, it's it's as if it's all it only affects the right. But you know, I I have noticed the same thing being you know be, being a non-white person who grew up in uh, Toronto and you know did my PhD in the UK and you know born in America. So so I know that whole. Um, you know, sociology and way of thinking up there. And yeah, it, it, it's just very, very much part of the, the left, the people who, who claim to be your friends, you know, they secretly look down uh, on you. And, and, and I would, I would add to, um, to your point by saying even recently, for example, when um, Trump uh, was lambasted by the media for supposedly, because we don't, uh, there's no recording of it or anything, but it's it was supposedly leaked to the media that he called uh, all these uh, countries in Africa, Latin America, etc. Um, I well, I won't curse on on the program because I'm I'm not sure what the uh, <laughs> what the uh, standards are of, with curse words, but s hole countries, right? So so that was what uh, he said, and and you know the left were were um, you know apoplectic about it on the media everybody would going crazy yet i've always found the same attitude uh from the left for example whenever they talk about deporting someone back to i don't know jamaica or to honduras or to mexico the left act as if this is a sentence to hell as if it's, it's the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody is to go back to their home country now as someone who was born and grew up abroad, uh, you know, in, uh, in North America. And I left there to go back to, you know, my, my ancestral home country. I see nothing degrading about that yet in, in their mind, that's the worst thing. If you're not in the, the land of honey and, you know, uh, America and whatnot. And it's, it's just, and as you said, another thing, another example came to my mind was just the mere, um, yeah, f- not fact or the, the, the mere insinuation that perhaps Barack Obama was not born in the United States is somehow racist. So if someone is not born in the United States, you're a racist. I, I, or if, if you say someone is born in Kenya, that's an insult. I, I don't understand that. It's, it's like sometimes if you notice somebody is, is black and you say they are black or they are dark skinned, or, you know, if you, if you describe a person, you're not supposed to say, oh, well, the person is black. You have the, oh, they're tall. They wore a green jacket. <laughs> but you're not supposed to, as if their black skin is an insult or their broad noses or whatever it is. It's, it's this, um, you know, it pretends to be tolerance, but it's social Darwinism, as you say. I think that's an excellent, excellent point. I don't know if you want to further elaborate on it, but I just thought that was excellent. 
Um, well, uh, at the time when I first moved to Norway and started studying cultural relations and, and um, the, the comparative religions, I'm a historian of comparative religions, I remember in mm-hmm. the studies as we were taught uh, social Darwinism was something they believed in in the, let's say, 1910, 1920s before World War II, but we have completely left that ideology now. And, 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 and I remember, you know, putting up my hand and saying, have we? Because I do feel that the whole university structure uh, still is permeated by that precise notion. Um, and I remember there was such an uproar while, while I said that, but, but, but I have come <laughs> to the understanding that that still is the case. And it's a sad thing to watch how, for example, many Africans, and maybe I could argue black Americans even more, they have been taught the same uh, racial Darwinism to the point that they look down on their, the, their, their color of their skin. Uh, which I find horrible, especially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Africans do it less because Africans have had their independent nations. Uh, they're so they have a strong elite in these nations. And, you know, they they but among uh, African-Americans, I, I find that to be very, very sad because the diversity, Absolutely. you know, Kirk, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in God. I'm a believer in God, the creator. Mm-hmm. And I often argue that, look, God created the world so diverse. I mean, there's all kinds of birds and they're all different from each other. There's all kinds of birds different in Africa than from the ones that live in Europe. You have all kinds of animals. Precisely the differences in culture, you have the Arab culture, you know, uh, you have the stories of Muhammad, and then you have the Indian culture and the stories of Krishna. And I mean, there, there's just such a diversity. And isn't that what is so beautiful about this world? And doesn't that open up the chance for us who live in one part of the world to learn something wonderful about the greatness of God and the greatness of diversity that we do find in another culture. So one of the issues that I try to combat in, in, in the new left um, uh, tyranny, uh, my new book, is that I argue that the new left, which is the word we use for the 1960s movement, the hippie movement, that, that uh, revolted so strongly against tra- the traditional values uh, in, in the West and the historical values such as the family, uh, the belief in God, such as, you know, being proud of the institutions and the Western stability and the Western ability to create, um, uh, uh, you know, nations that are peaceful, et cetera, et cetera. There was a revolt against these traditional values. And I argue that the new left implemented or has slowly implemented actually a tyranny in which diversity is not respected. Uh, plurality of opinion is not respected. Uh, and we are reintroducing a kind of authoritarian system that actually reminds us of the Nazi system during World War II. And one of my main arguments is that uh, that is actually natural 
because many of the founders of the new left were talking about the 1960 student revolution, um, revolts against historical Western values. Uh, a number of those guys were neo-Marxists and they existed and did their work as Marxists pre-World War II in Germany. But as we know, the National Socialism in Germany, and, and note, National Socialism or the Nazi Party, as we abbreviate it to, was a national socialist. It was a socialist way of thinking. It was not a right wing, but a left wing uh, system. And in my book, I also show how Theodore Adorno, who is one of the founding fathers of the 1960s New Left, he spent uh, many years redefining history and redefining the national socialism to be an extreme right wing uh, thing. So there's a lot of issues going on here um, that for those who are interested in reading this book, they will understand much better uh, how this has all happened. And I think we're entering another period of a very great lack of respect for diversity. That's that's very interesting. And, and I mean, that is a central argument of your book. So so if, if I was to, so is it correct to say that the new left tyranny you're talking about is a suppression of diversity? Is that essentially, it? if I had to simplify it? I would say suppression of diversity, suppression of free speech, suppression of individual mm -hmm. rights to differ in opinion and differ in lifestyles, a suppression of um, uh, a suppression of the freedom of the econ uh, the economic freedom of, for example, the working class. It's a suppression of the working class rights. So, in my book, I make the argument that the classical, let's say, socialists or neo Marxists or new left wingers, new left. Uh, from the 1970s and, and onward, have since the mid-1980s or the 1990s um, come into a partnership with the globalists, the economic classes, the the top 0.01%. Uh, uh, and this is mm -hmm. visible very much in the United States as we see how the 001% pays, for example, for a Congress member, for the running of that Congress member. Once that Congress member is, it, it come, gets to Congress, the same Congress member may amend laws in the United States that benefits only that group, which also paid for the persons, that capitalist group that also paid for that person's running for Congress. And uh, the Congress members are also exempt from the inside trading rules in the United States. So, for example, if a Congress member who has worked several years to amend those particular laws, that would benefit, let's say, the person's campaign was bought from the oil and gas industry or for big pharma. Uh, a week before the big pharma law is passed, that same Congress person uh, may go ahead and buy stocks, big stocks, and earn millions from those stocks uh, through an insider trading, really. So we see the whole system in the United States yeah. 
is corrupted in such a way that many in Congress are bought. And, and we tend to notice now that it's true that many Republicans um, have been bought in the past in exactly the same way. Uh, but we now notice that it is among the Democratic Party that we seem to see a lot of that. And those guys are socialists. So the strange thing is that the elite on the, in the left-hand side in the United States seem to be working against the working class uh, at mm -hmm. the moment. So, so it's a paradox too. When you look, you have in the United States, you have to go back to 1987 to find the high point for the middle class. And since then, we've seen how the riches have been assembled into the hands of the very few, and they are working with the socialist or democrat groups. So it's, it's, a, it's a big problem and a big mess. And I'm addressing in the, it in the new left tyranny. Yeah. I, and I, th I want to dwell on that term paradox um, a little more here as well, because um, as you say uh, in your book, as you argue that, you know, a central part of the new left tyranny is the you know lack of respect for diversity and, and, um, and even, you know, suppressing the economic freedom of the working class, right? Um, I think it's pretty much accepted now that the left has abandoned free speech and individual rights because of, of you know, the group and, and privileging of, a, of, of what they deem as oppressed groups. But, um, but I think that uh, they would, I think people would still be surprised at the argument and, and object, you know, deep down because, because the left believes that they are the party of diversity and that the right wing are against it and that, you know, everything that they stand for is diversity and, and the, the right wing are, are totally against it and conservatives are totally against it and that, um, they ultimately do, um, uh, stand for the economic freedom of, of the working class. They they are helping the poor and the the oppressed. Yet uh, you uh, argue quite cogently here that this is not the case. Can you um, expand on that a little more? Well, people, um, this is such a complex issue, of course, because when you look into socialism, and and I address that also, its initial values, its values were, uh, you know. Um, solidarity with the weak, empathy with the weak. When you look at the beginning of the socialist or the welfare system in uh, Europe, for example, in the UK, it was Christian, it was religious people uh, that went ahead and said, look, we all remember uh, Charles Dickens and, and all these authors who at the end of the 18th hundreds were writing about the horrible situation for regular citizens in the UK. Uh, so initially, the, the, the socialist system, which also has a lot of followers today that are, you know, that, that, that still believe in that, um, that, that, and which is, which is a wonderful idea and something that we should pursue all of us. Because if we do get a society in which only the 001% uh, have all the wealth and the rest are terribly poor, this is not going to create um, a just society. And we're looking for how to create a just society in which stability and peace will reign. And you have to have some sort of justice between the different class groups. This is, of course, also what Karl Marx spoke about. So there's good things with communism, to put it that way. And today, the irony, one of the ironies is that the communists 
are actually the ones that are fighting side by side uh, with with many conservatives in order to address the rampant need for redistribution of wealth uh, for the working class. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think um, I think some of the some of the socialists. This is what happens in history many times: is that movements that first started off with a good intention of helping deprived groups, for example, uh, ends up using the very same groups uh, for their own elites to get to the top. And I think power tends to corrupt whether we are religious, right-wing, left-wing, whatever we are. And this is one of the reasons why we at the Herland Report, we reach millions yearly with uh, with our articles and our TV shows. And, and we clearly say that the right-wing and left-wing divide really is so subtle nowadays. Um, you find most billionaires in the United States call themselves socialists and Democrats. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it's not an... It's uh, it's it's not a, an easy way of distinguishing uh, between uh, left and right anymore, which is part of the problem. Because in Europe too, I mean, many still talk about the left and the right as though we are still in the 1970s. But that's like 50 years ago. We have to update ourselves and 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 try to uh, the best of our ability to come back to the constructive good values in socialism, uh, to put it that way. Yeah. 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 I, I think, um, I think that, you know, a lot of this, um, critique of the whole paradigm of, of right and left, which, which I also share, um, and, and how it has to, it, it, that doesn't describe the, the fundamental, um, political divides anymore and it obscures it and it confuses it as you say perhaps i i think what uh, definitely you might be getting at and and i as well is maybe what it is is an anti-oligarchical system what so there is a kind of left-wing oligarchy they like hollywood ruling everybody they like you know bill uh you know um what's his name from apple steve if steve jobs is king they they would have no problem with it you know and uh, and all the uh, hollywood glitterati and rappers were um nobility <laughs> they would be fine no, democracy not needed <laughs> but um but then you know they and i suppose the right wing have their sort of preferred oligarchs as well but um there's an anti-oligarchical uh, tendency both on the right and the left and I think that is that seems something that you are more aligned with it, it, would you agree ah uh, yes I would definitely agree I think that um, ideologies uh, to be frank will always uh, be about some utopia some idea that is always lacking it always lacks the nuances needed. And mm-hmm. it doesn't respect the plurality and the complexity of reality. Uh, so we can have good ideas. We can look at, for example, the conservative classical thought. Uh, one of the strongest values within conservative thought was precisely the respect for diversity. Yes, I do agree with you that with the mainstream media, over 90% in the United States own Owned by uh, Democrat groups and by billionaires and 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 you know very strong capitalist groups in the United States, they control the narrative in such a way that one 
has completely forgotten that it was the Democratic Party that that was for the KKK. It was the mm-hmm. Democratic Party that ran um, against the abolition of slavery. It were the Republicans that wanted to end slavery. Yeah. Uh, and in the UK, segregationists, John Bill Connor, you know George Wallace, all the big segregationists were Democrats. Yeah. It's, the whole it's, civil- it's yeah. Yes, it's it's remarkable to 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 think about that today because it's as though some forces are trying to rewrite history. And as we're speaking about uh, slavery and all of that, nobody says anything about the high amount of uh, of of white slaves that were taken to, for example, Arabic countries. Um, mm-hmm. And and that we're, we're do we've done a lot of articles on that topic at the Herland Report because we think if we are to discuss slavery, we have to discuss white slavery and black slavery, and for example, we have to also discuss how did slavery come about. Look, I'm from Congo, or I was born and raised in Congo, um, and uh, in Congo, what happened there was that the black tribesmen, you know, there, there are approximately 200 tribes in Congo. They fought mm-hmm. each other uh, before, yeah. uh, hundreds of years ago. They fought each other and they each have one specific language. It's unbelievable the amounts of languages that yeah. Africans know and speak. So the tribal languages... You know, the tribes were against each other, fought each other. And when they conquered another tribe, they took the slaves. They took slaves, black slaves. Mm -hmm. They themselves being black took other black slaves from the neighboring tribe to serve them. And eventually they began selling those slaves to the Arab man because the Arab tradesmen started uh, penetrating into the interior of Africa and bought the slaves. And this went and took them out to the coast and took them up to the Arabic countries. So this went on for a long time before the white man uh, started coming with his slave trade ships and uh, take the slaves from Africa and bought them then from the Arab man and took them to the United States. So, For example, if we are to talk about slave trade, the African tribes also have to change their names. Uh, We should attack, you know, the Arab nations for being involved in that. We should attack the black man for being involved in selling black people. So there's just so many issues. And on top of it all, it was actually white people from the UK who started and Christians, religious people. Uh, who started working against the slavery trade in the United States. And it was the British Empire that abolished it. They even went to war against ships and Portuguese and others who continued using uh, or transporting slaves after they had abolished it. So there's just uh, such a such an um, high amount. OK, I, I, I talk now a bit about. Uh, these issues, I don't address that exactly in the new left tyranny, but it yeah. serves as an example of how uh, history is twisted and how the mainstream media owned by so few only pick a few segments and talk about. And my argument in the book is that this is creating, the, it's destabilizing the West and it's creating a war between the races today that is a very, very sad thing to see because it's only going to bring more segregation and destruction. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know these are very interesting topics and, and we can go off and talk about all sorts of implications, especially as, as things are going so crazy all around the world right now. But um, I, 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 another thing I want to explore with you that's very relevant to your argument and to the book. You see, when, when someone like me uh, or perhaps in the United States or Canada talks about Nazism, it's something we've read in books. It's something we've seen in movies. It's cartoonish. It's not real in the sense that, you know, we, we never personally experienced it in, in that way. But uh, Norway was occupied by the Nazis. Right? And uh, so you probably have some history uh, to understanding Nazism in a way that, that we don't. Um, and I'd be interested, be, especially, you know, because your argument, I, I want to follow it with Adorno after, but I, I want to hear from you first as, a, as to whether and how that may have affected your argument, your real personal history with, you know, being from a country that was actually literally occupied by Hitler and the Nazis. Well, I do think, as we remember, we tend now to speak about the Nazis as if uh, that ideology of socialism and nationalism and, and very strict and, and strong, um, let's say, disdain for specific groups that were considered dirty and that should be removed. And, and once we remove them, then everything will be wonderful. That kind of ideology uh, wasn't only in Germany, it was all across Europe at the time. Remember the early 1900s, the social Darwinism, which is defined as uh, the, the, the expectation that the white race or let's say the European uh, civilization is at the top of every ladder and all other cultures are beneath us. That was a I, I'd like to interject here um, to to further bolster your argument that, yeah, and, and this was a central part of Marx's historical materialism, right? So he had a very Spencerian view, you know, Herbert Spencer, uh, about the, the um, development of human uh, civilization. And I think uh, it was Taylor, I believe it was, um, uh, the American anthropologist. But, um, but yeah, and, and whereas, of course, industrial capitalism Capitalism was the pinnacle of human civilization uh, in Europe and that, you know, socialism would come out of Western Europe. But social Darwinism was central to Marxism as well. So I just wanted to add that yeah, to your argument there. Yes, and, and, and that's a wonderful uh, thing as well, because that even expands and makes uh, people understand even more uh, how uh, the Nazi ideology was a part of that socialist view that that like expanded across Europe and everybody went for that. Uh, out of the Marxist uh, initial thinking, which I also expand and write um, a lot about in The New Left Tyranny, 
because that seed of Marxism is so clearly seen in the new left 1960s and 70s movement uh, and its leaders such as Herbert Marcuse, we were speaking about Theodore Adorno, both of them and many others uh, clearly stated, for example, Jacques Derrida as well, uh, stated that they were neo-Marxists. So they said, yes, we are Marxist um, in thought. Uh, so we see how Marxism is permeating from the 60s and 70s, the American universities, and this can explain partly what, the reason why we have the situation we have today. Uh, but the, this kind of thinking, uh, we also saw in communism, communism is one of the, uh, the ideologies stemming, coming out of Marxism as well. And okay, if we, we okay, look, I was supposed to explain about Norway and, and, and the World War II. Let me just point out one thing about Karl Marx before I go on to that. When you study Karl Marx and you read him and his writing, um, what you do see is that what he suggests is that he suggests that there is to come a new Marxist class. He -hmm. does not suggest that the working class is supposed to take over the bourgeoisie. He opposed himself or he was opposed to the, the feudalist system at the time and, you know, wanted a new class to take over. But he clearly states, too, that the class he wants to take over, that he wants to take over is himself and his Marxist friends. So so this is an element that we see implemented also into the West from the 70s and onward, that there's a new class coming. But does that class really benefit the working class? Or is that just taking one elite, removing one elite, and by bloody revolution, implementing a new elite? Um, that, that is a good question. But OK, let me answer quickly uh, your, 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 um, your uh, questions there about Norway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in that context, Norway was, of course, also part of Europe and also very strongly uh, and and. and enthusiastic about the ideals that came out of the 1900s. And we saw, for example, in Norway, a very rap. I mean, we almost went with the Germans. They were very strong for you. We are a Germanic uh, people as well. And we have had very close ties to Germany. And we almost went with them. The few Jews that we have in Norway, uh, we were very quick to report to the Germans where they lived, who they were. Uh, and, and, and this has been hidden in Norwegian history as well later, how close we were, how closely, let's say, uh, related we were to that kind of ideology. And when I first moved to Norway, uh, that was in the 80s. Um, I remember, just to pull an example on, on, on what I perceived to be the Nazi ideology still lingering. Mm-hmm. Um, I started working in my days as a student. I started working at, at um, the hospital doing evening shifts. And um, one of the people that I worked with from time to time was an African, a black African. And he was always late for work, 15 to 20 minutes. He kind of just dropped in 20 minutes yeah. later than, than ever. And nobody said anything. And yeah. I was so surprised. I have written about this in one of my best-selling books in Scandinavia called Respect. I have told that tale. 
So I said to him when it happened like the third, second time, third time, I was like, nobody says anything to the guy. So I told him, what is wrong with you? Why do you expect me to work half an hour double shift, you know, for two people? And then you just come dumping in. You have to pull yourself together and blah, blah. And then he turned around and looked at me and he said to me, you are a racist. (laughs) And at that point, I began to understand that there's a training in this country. He was so used to getting away with things. He was so used to, if anybody spoke to him and spoke to him in an equal manner, the way any white speaks to any white, to put it that way. I mean, ethnically, we are light skinned in Norway. This is, this is whatever. This is our heritage. So to any other Norwegian, ethnic Norwegian, I would have said that flat out. But when I said it to him, he was already infused into the ideology that everyone was supposed to feel sorry for him because he came from Africa. Now he That's didn't right. know that I come from Africa. So I told him, <laughs> you me a racist. You have come to the wrong place. So we <laughs> later became very good friends and we laughed about that later <laughs> because I told him, racist, you are the racist, I told him. And then we started quarreling and ended up as very good friends. When he understood <laughs> that I was his sister, I told him, Call that racist story to whatever person you find there, but don't take that out on me. Right. Just, just for the listeners who, you know, they can't see you. I mean, you are a blonde haired, you know, very, you know, white skinned, platinum blonde, you know, woman, you know, Norwegian, you know, Scandinavian, Scandinavian, although you were born in the Congo, it's uh, but uh, because your parents are there. Yeah. So, I mean, so the, the physical contrast is, is there, but he didn't know you were born in the Congo. <laughs> No, so that pulled him off. And so I've had a lot of those, <laughs> those, those kinds of experiences. And I see to this day, um, I feel still like a foreigner in Norway. So there are cultural <laughs> codes that I still don't uh, completely understand. And many of my close friends in Norway are Africans because I seem to relate more to that kind of international environment. Um, yeah. Rather than... I, you know, I, 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 sorry to interrupt, but I, I, I think, you know, something that's very, very important about your insights here into the, um, Nazism and relating the new left to Nazism. Uh, what's very important, I think, is that it, you, you are addressing, you know, the, the way that people who haven't been exposed to it, like, so outside of Europe, right? So Americans uh, who are leading uh, a lot of the discourse, um, how we have a cartoonish ver- version of Nazism. And, and so therefore we think, how could anybody actually accept this? How could you be so stupid to accept this ideology? Can't you see it's plainly evil? But what you're showing is that it was accepted by everybody. This social Darwinism was, uh, and and in fact, it's still here, but we don't recognize it. You know, we, and, and that's a very, very, very important argument because by making Nazism a cartoon, um, you know, by making, you know, uh, you know, this social and, and divorcing it from social Darwinism, divorcing it from, from its leftist origins, we, it's, it's actually coming in, but people think they're fighting against it or they think, oh, I would never be part of an ideology like that. 
when, as you say, this social Darwinism, uh, which informed um, National Socialism, which in, and and inform Marxism is pervasive in the ideology. I think that's such an important point because most people who are participating in it don't even realize they are. Do you agree? Is, yes, I do think this is so true. And you can, for example, discuss uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which started initially as a wonderful movement, you know, working for rights, uh, civil rights movements, uh, rights uh, for, for, for Americans today. A wonderful idea. Um, but you notice now how the whole um, community or the, the reaction has been politicized to the point that they attack in America statues and remove statues of people that were anti-slavery, but they remove the statues of those who were white. Yeah. Uh, they remove that. So it's beginning to become um, an anti-white uh, mm-hmm. movement uh, so so and for within that once you start to concentrate on allowing the the color of somebody's skin to define evil or good that's where you are right back to nazi ideology because that is what they did mm-hmm. and uh, when you look at for example what was it about jews it was a specific ethnic group that the nazis mm-hmm. did like. Uh, They also almost equally did not like the gypsies. So it was an ethnic, a specific ethnic group that was deemed to be evil. And that's exactly what we see in some of the Black Lives Matter, which is, uh, you may say, you know, I mean, it really, it's it's, um, a group that differs extremely from the Martin Luther King movement. He was a Christian religious preacher. Uh, He held the Bible in one hand and preached, we are to love one another. He was nonviolent. He was, and look what they achieved. He spoke of a dream of a day when all races would embrace each other. So he had a completely divergent and very different and very conservative view. Martin Luther King was a classic conservative thinker and a great man. Uh, so, so, and in, in his movement, you did not see the tendency that all blacks are good, but all whites are evil, for example. And you can do it, you can look at it from, from, from the European angle. Like I was saying, some of the extreme right wingers in Europe today are fighting to have all the non-Western citizens, uh, leave. And that's what they hope for. Uh, thinking that once everyone with darker skin has left Europe, then Europe will be wonderful. Well, you know, I mean, we'd be stuck with all the, may I say, white idiots that live here. We'll be stuck with them. So what does it help us that we get, we we remove, but I'm I'm just trying to explain that both on the right and the left wing side. There's a simplistic colorism, sort of. There's a colorism, (laughs) which is always a mistake because it's all, I am just really completely against it. And I think it's being abused as an argument today uh, among some who want us all to fight so that they can get all the glory and take all the money. I think we're in into the, uh, 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 there's a perspective there that is very sad. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, I, I want to, I, I think that it has been um, pretty well established for people who are open-minded enough and, and objective enough to see the socialist um, roots of national socialism. I mean, it's in the name, but, but you know, from George Sorrell and the syndicalist movement and, and those people who, you know, advocated revolutionary violence and, and, and you, you know, all those, those tendencies were definitely part of fascism and national socialism. Um, but w- what's also important, which I think uh, is less explored um, but very important that you talk about is, you know, Adorno and the Frankfurt School uh, redefining Nazism as right-wing. Uh, can you uh, elaborate on that a little for us, please? Well, and, and I do address that in The New Left Tyranny quite extensively mm-hmm. because I think it is important for people to understand the connection between the national socialism and the socialism we see, the authoritarian socialism with its lack of respect for diversity, lack of respect for free speech, lack of respect for uh, differences of opinion that we see today and that we have seen in the American university system become worse and worse and worse. Um, to the point of fighting speakers who are saying something slightly different than the radical left would want. And in that, we do see that authoritarian push. Um, and um, uh, Jordan Peterson, I remember one of his interviews uh, in which um, he was addressed by one of the students saying, so, so how do you, you know, my abbreviation, how do you, you, uh, how, how, can you explain to us how would it be to be a Nazi? And he said the Nazis were just like you, regular yeah. people who had such strong, and this is what I add, he just said that and the whole congregation just laughed. Uh, yeah. So we tend to forget. And what happened um, after World War II was that Theodore Adorno and the Frankfurt School, like you mentioned, um, they were situated in Germany and they were doing clearly Marxist thinking. Karl Marx advocated for bloody tyranny, that is revolution. Uh, a, a bloody revolution was to change everything and was to substitute one elite, one bourgeoisie elite, with a new bourgeoisie elite. And the new bourgeoisie elite that was to rule the world was Karl Marx and his friends. Uh, they believed in an internationalist system, which we also find now socialism going very well with the globalist kind of thinking, borderlessness, no borders, no uh, regulations between borders, um, no respect for local culture, but an internationalist kind of way of thinking. So after World War II, as the Nazi system did not work so well, obviously, in Germany, they did not win that war. Uh, My argument, one of my arguments in the book is that the same capitalist groups that that in Germany supported the Nazi um, uh, system that worked very well together with Hitler, um, the same groups attempted to do the same in Europe, uniting Europe in an internationalist kind of way while implementing post-World War II, the EU. 
or the steel and coal union, the same yeah. capitalist German groups joined in what I call in this book, the regional socialism. The national socialism didn't work that well. Now they attempted a regional socialism to unify the markets. And we see how that has been a struggling development. And isn't that interesting, um, the way that the the capitalists have almost always throughout history supported the radical communists because um, the the political leaders of the EU movement, almost all of them are former communist party members. Um, and, um, you know, just like the, the funding of the Bolshevik revolution was done by Wall Street and, and some of the, um, you know, biggest uh, financiers uh, of the day, uh, today, George Soros, with uh, you know all these movements from Antifa to uh, Black Lives Matter, it's it's incredible um, how this is is consistent throughout. But yeah, so you, you're talking about the the right uh, the the capitalist support for the EU. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and 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 then uh, at the same time in the fifties, that's when Theodore Adorno and and several of those guys, uh, uh, Herbert Marcuse, moved to the United States and started working through the the systems there, and they relabeled themselves as neo-Marxists. And I think from this point is where Adorno um, had the strong need to relabel the Nazi uh, structure as right-wing. And we see him writing several books about that topic and lecturing about that topic. And of course, people believed him because he was a German guy moving to the U.S. We know so many of the old Nazis. This is, of course, another topic uh, that I don't address in my book either. But so many of the old Nazis were also brought over as engineers and and, and within the CIA and everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So and also within the space program later. Because the Germans are excellent, they have excellent minds, and they had excellent yeah. engineers and, and physicists and all of that. So, so we see also how uh, the a number of those Nazis did move to the United States and became quite central uh, post World War Two. So, so I think it's been hidden very well that the National Socialism was socialist, but we do see it coming back. And you're pointing to the fact that. So many of, of, of the, 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 the great capitalist owners have supported the communist movement or the socialist movement. I do think, and this I do address in the book quite extensively, um, I do think uh, that the socialist movement, the belief in a strong state, the belief that everyone should pay all their taxes to a strong state, the belief in what we saw within the communist segment, how a small elite, less than 10 persons, um, controlled everything. They controlled what the factories were to produce. They controlled what the people were to think. They controlled the media. They control everything. So when you have such, when you have a socialist state in which you impose lack of freedom of speech, lack of uh, respect for diversity, look at World War II in Germany. They were not even allowed to listen to other radio stations than the ones that, that Hitler and Goebbels and and, and the propaganda ministerium administered to them. You could be arrested even from for reading something else. So there was yeah. an extreme strict um, control over the population. And then if you are so lucky to be the capitalist owner, 
who now accesses the taxpayer money since mm-hmm. the state is so completely controlled. Then the capitalist owners also access the billions uh, owned by the state or the taxpayer money. And then we are right back to the success formula of the East Indian, East Indian um, the, exactly. company. Exactly, East Indian uh, company. Yes, because the whole point that made the East Indian company flourish to the point it still to this day is the most, I do believe, wealthiest ever was In that history. during the British Empire, uh, the East India Company accessed taxpayers' money and merged it with the leading capitalists. And basically yeah. the people were told to shut up in such a system. And that is what we see now being rekindled uh, in the Bill Gates, Davos system, where private capital merges with public funding in such a way that the leading capitalist owners today uh, access capital, access state money, and do so by promising state leaders excellent jobs once they finish in politics and all of that which we are seeing right. very much That's today. Right. That's right. And 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 the um the East India Company didn't only do it with the British um taxes and whatnot, but also from the Mughal Empire. And uh, I mean the Mughals were richer than Britain when um when the East India Company first uh first went there. And when they were able to administer the taxes of the Mughal Empire, you know, they so they had it on both ends, from the British end and from the India end. Yeah, th- those are fascinating and very important insights. You know, and and I just wanted to add um, as well. You know, within academic circles, uh, definitely, you know, people think of fascism and communism as the opposite. But if you talk to just ordinary people, you know, who who haven't, you know, gone to university and and whatnot, they they can barely distinguish between fascists and communists. They they think that it's it's all the same, because I suppose in the end, uh, they are just concerned is you know that's an unfree system as opposed to a free system. Would you uh, agree with that? Uh, well, yes, and you may say if you want to uh, make a, a left-wing argument, you can say that. But my goodness, the conservatives and the traditionalists back in the day in Europe wasn't the East India Company. That happened when the traditionalists and the religious people owned the British Empire, to put it that way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and look how they misused their power and look how yeah. they took the money from the taxpayer. And this is uh, the argument that makes many, especially young people. There's a saying that when you're young, you're radical. When you're old, you're conservative because you realize yeah. that yeah. all the beliefs that you had being so radical really were utopianism and you were like used by one force or the other with, with, um, mm-hmm. and, and very often capitalist uh, agendas. So, 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 you know, that, that could be so, but it's still a valid arg- argument that when you look at the Middle Ages, I do address this in the book as well. Uh, and this is where I find my sympathy for socialism and the initial socialism and also the initial communism. I mean, you know, you can have some sympathy there. They wanted mm-hmm. for the workers to have rights. 
They yeah. want it for the blacks and the whatever different cultures, whatever color of your skin. They wanted to fight for the poor. It's a very honorable thing. So I do think, too, that regardless of the elite ruling, you will have, whether they are traditionalist bourgeoisie like Karl Marx didn't like particularly much because he wanted to be the new elite that probably owned everything. I don't know. You know, I mean, there's always a new class or a new generation that wants to take the power. Um, so, so, so I think disregarding whether you're uh, religious or conservative or whether you are communist or whatnot, look what happened in, in, in the Soviet Union, you will mm -hmm. have the tendency towards the abuse of power. And this is precisely why um, I personally do support Montesquieu and some of those Uh, that worked in the realm of before and after the French Revolution, who said that we need to have checks and balances. And this is right. precisely also why I think the Western civilization became so successful and was able to have, you know, institutions, sound and fair institutions, um, and, a, and a society in which there was at least some level of, uh, of justice because they applied the ideas of Montesquieu and others that the king shouldn't own the country, the judiciary system shouldn't own the country. There shouldn't be a, a system in which it's just to pay one another or that, that elevates corruption and uh, makes corruption able to take over so that whoever has the most money is the one that's going to rule the country, whether he's elected democratically or not. I do believe that that we should go back to, to to the values of Montesquieu. And this is, of course, also the founding principles for what we call democracy now. Has there mm -hmm. ever been a rule of the people? I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, we remember Churchill saying, you know, being quite critical of democracy as well. I mean, there's a lot of corruption in democracy as well. But I do think that we have seen the past few hundred years that precisely the democratic system at least alleviates some injustice and at least administers a society in which the general public, which we have seen in the West, have been, uh, you know, enriched. And we have had the working class with rights. Uh, we, we have had um, a strong middle class. It's eroding now, yes. Um, but those would be my arguments pro-democracy, which I am the first to acknowledge also doesn't work perfectly. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's why I think the, um, I mean, it, it, it's not often recognized, but, but there are a significant number of people who do that. The founding fathers of the American Constitution, now we're all, you know, seen as racist slave owners, but, but if we were to, to not accept that, uh, that demonization of them and, and respect them for their, for their, uh, amazing insights, um, they, uh, they actually were not enamored with democracy. And that's why they never even mentioned the word democracy. They are, they were for a republic. Um, you know, and it's uh, where there were democratic elements, but you had this Montesquieuian um, division because it, they understood that even a democracy could be rule of the mob, which is kind of what we're seeing today. You know, so that um, even democracy has its um, 
uh, has its drawbacks in, in the classical version. If you go back to Plato and Aristotle and the, the Western tradition certainly has, has a lot of that. I was speaking to Alexander Dugan at length uh, about that, uh, uh, that very important point. Um, and that, yeah, so that you're, you are, I suppose you tra- you kind of transcend the, the contemporary right and left because you go back to the classical foundations um, of this sort of liberal democratic state, which is, uh, you know, Republican uh, and, and not just simply um, mob rule either. Uh, would you, so uh, would you accept that characterization? Um, yes, I do think I would. And, and then, and of course that is, the question is though, uh, are we ruled by the mob today? I don't, th- I think we are very far from being ruled by yes. a mob. I think uh, that that mob is very well funded uh, by people with an agenda. And sadly, uh, I do believe the agenda of those, let's say white rich guys, who funds mm-hmm. the Black Lives Matter and many Antifa and many of those movements, they are not about trying to help uh, black lives in America. And let's, we can be the judge of that five years down the line, uh, five yeah, years yeah. from now. Did um, a, certain, uh, a, a lot of these major corporate get an easier mm-hmm. life after this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, uh, certainly a lot of those major corporations <laughs> that are funding it. Uh, have historical ties to slavery, and uh, the fact that they're they're tearing down all these, uh, they're supporting the tearing down of these statues, which um, you know have these links. It's kind of erasing from the public record <laughs> the the links of of the major corporations to the history of slavery. So it's kind of convenient for them in a lot of ways, I think. Yeah, and, and you may also say, looking at what's happening now, okay, look, there's so many videos appearing of, of black Americans crying and shouting and say, why are you destroying our inner cities? This is where we have our shops. That's right. I think they said over 40% of those um, who are facing die, a dire situation due to the lockdown as well are black Americans' businesses. So and and also okay, you can look at it from a from 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 a real estate perspective. The whole thing, what is happening now? Okay, uh, who's 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 now administrating uh, the the smashing of the inner cities, the smashing of the Black American communities? Many of those houses that are there are very old and ugly. You know, who's going to take over and remake those areas? Who's who's really wanting to take over the real estate property uh, that we yep. now see being smashed in the inner cities? The inner cities have really a wonderful uh, uh, real estate property market. And in, in many of the American cities, that's where you do find the ghettos. So I don't know. I think it's sad that somebody is, is using the situation. But that's set aside and speaking about democracy – um, if you look at the, the, the ancient world of Plato, uh, the, the democracy, we often say that we have the, 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 the old Athenian democracy. We do not because we, mm-hmm. in that time, it was men above 30 years old who had a high education and came from certain set of families that were able to vote. Uh, the slaves were not able to vote. Women were not able to vote, servants or whatever. 
So, so, so they attempted, I guess, to have a certain degree of those who were to vote needed to have a certain amount of knowledge so that they wouldn't be so easily duped. And this is Noam Chomsky's point, too, when he says that especially in democracies, it is very important for the ruling elite to be in control of the media as the media then spills out what people are to think. And then they go to the voting polls and they vote whatever the media said they should vote. And we can say, looking countries such as Brazil, I used to live in Brazil. I mean, you know, the people wanted one of the one of the 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 the, the soccer stars to become the president because he's so good looking and whatever, you know. So, 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 so there are obvious elements with democracy. If anybody is to vote, okay, if, if it's supposed to be a system in such a way, then the media needs to completely control the minds of the people, even in a stronger matter uh, way than in. Um, in a tyranny or in a dictatorship, says Noam Chomsky. Yeah, you know, and th- this is a point I want to ask you as well to for us to elaborate on, which is, um, I mean, your book is published by uh, Christian Publishing House, is it? Yeah, the Christian Publishing House. And I mean, very much um, uh, people would, I suppose, characterize you as a conservative or perhaps right wing. But I mean, you, you quote Chomsky approvingly. You say socialism and communism has, you know, you, you admire uh, so much of, of their ideals in terms of helping the poor and, 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 and against exploitation and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and wherever it was sincere in that aspect, you support. So, um, uh, how do you how do you actually um, characterize yourself? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, uh, at least at the hurl, I, I probably would say I am a conservative, but I am a conservative mm-hmm. that that um, that and and obviously I'm a religious person. Uh, for me, uh, many uh, publishing houses in the United States wanted me to publish, or several wanted me to publish with them. Uh, for me to publish with a Christian publishing house is really a way of, um, what can I say, not to use a bad word, but um, it's a revolt. Um, yeah. um, um, you know, it's my revolt uh, publishing with them rather than publishing with uh, another more neutral kind of name. I, I dislike very much that we've come to the point that if somebody says he's a Christian or a religious person, then then automatically you're being seriously scorned. You know, mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, okay, go ahead. If you want to scorn me, I'm very fine with that. I know many of these uh, foundational values were the ones that made the Western civilization so successful in the, in the first place. So I'm happy to be demonized if you want to demonize me for that. Um, but, but I probably would, would say that I'm, I'm leaning towards a, a conservative, but then an original, I, I really like Edmund Burke, um, yeah. back in the day in the 1700s, that's my kind of conservative thought. Um, mm-hmm. because when you, you look at his opposition to the French revolution, I mean, the French revolution is portrayed. I address that in the book. The French revolution is currently portrayed as such a wonderful time where, 
you know, I mean, freedom came to the people and, you know, the horrible uh, leadership, whatever, took their food and all, which they probably did, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, the when you look at closely at the French Revolution and the opposition against it in the UK, and Edmund Burke was central as a philosopher and politician back in the day, he was very much against the French Revolution. And much of his work actually aimed at uh, making sure that the UK would not have the same kind of development. And the French Revolution was horrible. Uh, yeah. After they killed the king and the queen, I mean, there were guillotines almost everywhere, anyone. And we see the authoritarian element coming uh, already back then in, in 1789 onward. And we have, uh, remember, also Karl Marx writing his book in in the 1840s. So that's just 40 years later or 50 years later. So the whole, uh, you know, that kind of thinking permeated Europe at the time. And in France, order was not reinstated until Napoleon Bonaparte took power. And he had to bomb the streets of Paris. He actually took cannons and bombed the streets of Paris with the cannons to stop uh, those anarchists that uh, were creating uh, a horrible situation for the regular people and the working class during the French Revolution. So, so, so there is so again so many elements that we don't hear about today. It's in the history books. You read it uh, if you if you take the care to do that. Uh, but I do believe in the thoughts that, that people like Edmund Burke uh, stood for in the UK. And people also tend to forget that one of the issues, okay, look, I've been a very strong opponent of the wars in the Middle East and the US using billions and billions. I've lived in the Middle East for a number of years. And the amount mm-hmm. of money that has gone into uh, fighting in Libya and many places, Iraq and whatever, they probably had their reasons. Uh, that's fine. But I mean, there's been just millions and millions of displaced people, et cetera, et cetera. I've fought that against that for many years in the public uh, discourse in, in Scandinavia and in Europe. Um, but, but, but when you look at uh, that particular element and, and, and how that has, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, when, you, okay, when you go back to Edmund Burke then, and read mm-hmm. what he said about his negative thoughts about the abuse of Indians during the British Empire and what they did to regular Indians in India at that time. He mm-hmm. warned, and this is a classical conservative guy, he warned and said, if the British Empire will not treat Indians better, and make sure they have a certain amount, a set of rights, like the Romans made sure whenever they went in and conquered somewhere, they gave the people there a certain set of rights and said to them, so long as you pay tax to us, you can keep your religion and whatever. And people wanted to be in the Roman Empire because there was a protection against the outside world tyranny and robbery and everything. So they wanted to be a part of the Roman Empire. And and his argument was, Edmund Burke's argument was, was that if not the British Empire takes care and gives right to the Indians, the Indians will rise up against you and you will lose the dominion over that, you know, and, and whatever. And that's exactly what happened. So 
in my time, as I have fought side by side with activists, anti-war activists in Europe over many years now, communists and socialists, many times I've been the only uh, conservative around. I don't know why mm-hmm. the conservatives are not against wars. They should listen to Edmund Burke. He was the father of the modern day uh, conservative movement, which, which I feel aligned to. But look, there have been in my pursuit, the only uh, uh, conservative around. Uh, so I'm very thankful to my communist friends and, and socialist friends that have that have spoken up against the kind of, you know, I mean, the kind of, what can we say, abuse of the little man. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and to be frank with you, uh, Kirk, uh, I, I, it's many years ago that I realized that human rights uh, that is just something that only applies to, to okay, let's talk about color of skin, white people. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, Arab, Arab lives do not have any human rights. Uh, I don't know so, why yeah. they speak about human rights as a universal thing with the U- UN. At best, they are hypocritical. At worst, yeah. I guess they're bought, you know, I don't know what to tell you, but look at Libya, what kind of civil rights and human rights do regular Libyans have? I mean, cows and pigs have more rights in the and West. I have, to add, I have to add to this the coronavirus, because while we're trying to prevent, you know, uh, you know we're lamenting over 100,000 deaths from coronavirus, um, there are millions of people dying from hunger and starvation, entirely preventable every year but you know they're mainly africans and asians and so who cares you know they they're dying all the time anyway so you don't you don't have to think about that even though all this lockdown to, to prevent the coronavirus which is hitting north america new york you know so so big um so you lock down the whole world and increase starvation in africa but you know we know whose lives really matter <laughs> Yeah, so 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 uh, there there is um, there is a, such a hypocrisy pertaining to that. Like, okay, where was Bill Gates uh, end of February saying it's the pandemic of a century? Every single county has to shut down. China shut down one city, Wuhan, and some of Hubei. Yes, uh, but the rest yeah. of China was and its borders. But the rest of China was business as usual. I mean. I have friends in Shanghai and other places they've seen. I mean, there's nothing happening here. All the restaurants, everything is open. So all of a sudden, Bill Gates uh, has this great need to push everybody. And the WHO, frankly, pushed uh, Europe into shutdown on March 10th in a particular meeting there, uh, saying millions would die and all millions have not died. But okay, millions are threatened under threat of dying from hunger now in India, Mm -hmm. in Africa. And like you so well pointed out, uh, nobody seems to care about that. So, so, yeah. so the question is, where is Bill Gates with the, all those that are dying? Look at India at the moment. I mean, uh, it's it's unspeakable, and it's injustice, yeah. and it's uh, it's gross injustice. And again, due to the media being so controlled by some of the the Western forces. And due to the UN speaking about speaking about human rights as a universal right, but then practicing the very opposite, uh, we do see a high degree of injustice in the world. And I think this is one of the reasons for the rise of China and the 
what can you say, the collusion of Russia, China, and, and the BRIC countries, and you know, and and, and mm-hmm. South Africa as well. They 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 are trying to establish some sort of system that can bring some human rights to other people as well. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And 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 just as an aside, that that is something I I had actually liked about Donald Trump, right? Which which the left don't understand. You know, Donald Trump was against NATO and against, uh, you know, the World Bank and the IMF and the CIA and the FBI and all these institutions of Western imperialism. He was totally against that because he understood how it also affected the American working class, you know, and, um, you know, yet the, the liberals are so wedded to all these institutions. It's, it's, it's incredible, you know, so, so they have been part of the tyranny <laughs> that, uh, that we in the third world have been traditionally uh, against, you know. So, but uh, yeah, that that may be outside of the remit of your book, but it certainly touches on on all of these issues. Um, you know, I so uh, you know I've, I've kept you here a long time, and and we can continue chatting for hours. But let let me just ask you, um, where do you see this this new left tyranny that you've identified and explored? Where where do you see it going? From here, do you do you think it's getting stronger? Do you think there's going to be a pushback uh, against it? Where, where where do you see this all heading? Um, that's an interesting question. When you look at uh, Plato and his discussions with uh, Trasimachus, I do believe it was in the state, and, mm-hmm. and these different writings from the old ancient times. I love that. I, I love uh, that dialogue. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and and Plato clearly warned against tyranny. Uh, and, and he said that, you know, I mean, the culture itself, uh, when you read uh, Aristotle as well, and even even going to, to, to you know, those, those guys uh, clearly mm-hmm. said that if it continues in a certain way that you, do, that you completely lose the order, uh, the Athenian culture would go towards his end. I do believe 40 years after Pericles, whatever, that was the end of it. So... We, we have a similar situation here. The, the success of tyranny, we saw the success in the Soviet Union. We saw the success in the National Socialism. Um, you know, we've seen the success also probably in conservative movements that have become tyrannical to add to that. Uh, but the problem with tyranny is that at one point or another, the people are tired of it. So, mm-hmm. so, and, and the thing is, it's the same when you compare with the Roman Empire as well. I mean, the Roman Empire was on the rise as long as it was able to provide security and some sort of benefits to its citizens. Once that began to derail um, and civil war started breaking out here and there, we saw the Germanic tribes actually were able to override uh, Rome. So, so, mm-hmm. and then from there, we saw the East Roman Empire uh, grow and it grew for another thousand years before that also evaporated to, to, to the Muslim conquest. So, so I guess whoever I would say, I would look to China. I'm jokingly saying I would look to China. I would at mm-hmm. least very much look to the Chinese military genius Sun Tzu, whom I quote a lot in the book as well. He mm-hmm. said the point is to have the moral high ground. So as yeah. long as a civilization at least attempts to be somewhat fair and just 
to its subordinated um, cultures and peoples, uh, those people will still want to be a part of that culture and that civilization because they have benefits and rights in it. So, so, and, but if that is all eroding and everything goes to civil wars and killings and, and whatnot, and no just and the justice system, for example, is not working anymore, uh, and the question mm-hmm. of the justice system is who pays, who pays what to which judges? I mean, that's what we used to have in Congo. But I mean, it was a, a, a trial was a simple story. It was just about who paid. Um, who paid the highest amount of money to the judge, that was the one that won the case. So if you have that kind of system, um, it may proceed for a while uh, and you may go ahead and pursue a gulag uh, and you may kill 20 million people. Uh, But at the end of it, it ends. Uh, Because I, I do believe that people are... People will move from that place. They will move to other. And like Orban in Hungary has said, you guys will all start moving to my country, he said uh, a few mm-hmm. years back. And when he stopped all, all the, the illegal onflow of, of immigrants uh, going into Hungary and the EU was so angry at him, he said, oh, you can just say what you want. But in a few years, you're going to want to move and buy a house in my country, he said, because we're going to have peace here. Yeah. So... That's that's uh, in short uh, an analogy you may say on my analysis. Right, right. So, what message would you like to leave your readers with after they read your book? Uh, I would like to say we should attempt each and every one uh, of us uh, in our private lives, in a day-to-day manner, to love one another, not to judge one another, be open-minded, and try to learn from other people. And embrace life. Be happy. Be contentious. You know, try to focus on that which is good. And be vocal about what you are against. And be vocally against uh, tendencies that you think are destructive. But be open and listen to people if they disagree with you. There might be something to learn. Excellent, excellent. And uh, are you working on any projects right now? And how can listeners get in touch with you and the Herlin Report? Um, please uh, let everybody know. Yes, I would love for everybody to follow us at the Herland Report. We have a big international success on, on the website, and you can just log on to Google uh, typing Herland Report, uh, or you can do the Herland Report, D H E theherlandreport.com that's where we have our stuff uh you we also have a youtube channel that um is publishing a lot of exciting material both from all kind people from all kinds of walks of life leading intellectual leading western intellectuals leading authors best-selling authors and activists anti-war activists and and so follow us both on the YouTube channel and on the news site. We also have a newsletter uh, and you find the directions on the website, how to apply to the newsletter as Facebook and, and Google and many of these channels nowadays are quite censored and Twitter as well is very censored. And due to that, it's a good idea to, to get onto the newsletter and type your name in there so that you can have the articles that we steadily publish out. 
Okay, well, great. Well, thanks so much for this interview, Hannah. It's been very informative and enjoyable. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an honor speaking to you. Once again, the book is New Left Tyranny, The Authoritarian Destruction of Our Way of Life. And we've been speaking to the author, Hannah Nabuntu Herland. It's been a pleasure. That's all for Politics and Polemics this week. If you like this, remember to check out my other podcast, Independent Thought and Freedom, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Also, if you are an academic and want to get heard nationally, check out my free training at becomeapublicintellectual.com. Thanks, and see you next week.